Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. 30 years later, how is Anita Hill? Getting even. I'm Fabiola Sinius, and I write for Vox about race and policy. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Anita Hill made history in 1991 when she launched a national conversation about sexual harassment a conversation that had never been had before in such a major public forum. That forum was the live televised nomination hearings of Clarence Thomas, now a sitting justice on the Supreme Court. Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, a group of 14 white men chaired by then-Senator Joe Biden. Professor Hill, please uh, make whatever statement you would wish to make to the committee. The comments were random and ranged from pressing me about why I didn't go out with him to remarks about my personal appearance. He commented on what I was wearing in terms of whether it made me more or less sexually attractive. He referred to the size of his own penis, and he also spoke on some occasions of the pleasures he had given to women with oral sex. I was handicapped because I feared that I might be dismissed from the job I had. They grilled her about the sexually explicit comments he made toward her, like whether he ever invited her to watch pornographic movies, how often he talked about women's breasts, and whether Thomas asked Hill for sex. You said you took it to mean Judge Thomas wanted to have sex with you, but... In fact, he never did ask you to have sex, correct? How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements? All we've heard for 103 days is about a a most remarkable man, and nobody but you has come forward. You are not now drawing a conclusion that Judge Thomas sexually harassed you. Yes, I am drawing that conclusion. Well, then I don't understand. Infamously, one senator even asked if she was a scorned woman out to get Thomas as she stood alone before millions of viewers. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? Are you interested in writing a book? The Senate ultimately confirmed his nomination despite Hill's detailed testimony that Thomas sexually harassed her when he was chair of the Equal Opportunity Commission, where she advised him. So help you God. So help me God. Anita Hill has repeatedly said her testimony was an ethical responsibility. And now, 30 years later, she's still taking public stands. She's now hosting a podcast called Getting Even with Anita Hill. She has an active Twitter account. And this past year, she released her latest book called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. In it, she chronicles the movement's progress toward trusting and supporting survivors. I spoke with Anita Hill in mid-April, weeks before the stunning leak of a draft opinion that would overrule Roe v. Wade. In our conversation, we'll talk a little bit about the grim prospects for abortion rights, but what was primarily on my mind at the time was the recent confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson 
set to become the first Black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. The Judiciary Committee's treatment of Judge Jackson looks a lot like what Hill experienced as a witness some decades ago. She doesn't use the enhancements available to her. She takes them off the table. And I think that's a big mistake, Judge. I want to try to understand here, is it your view that society is too hard on sex offenders? You say they truly are shunned. Uh, you made your views on the pro-life movement very clear. You attacked pro-life women. But Anita Hill has come a long way from 1991. Back then, when she became a so-called touchstone for political issues, Hill got an unlisted phone number, installed a security system at her home, and avoided public attention as much as possible. But that didn't mean she wanted to withdraw from public life. As they say in law, let's correct the record. My life was being threatened. My family was being threatened. I didn't have a choice to get a security system and an unlisted phone number if I was going to have any kind of peace in my home. So that's one thing that I want to be sure of and to distinguish that from trying to withdraw from public life. I went back to teaching. I did give lectures. I was invited to college campuses. I gave a number of public lectures starting probably in the fall, but into the beginning of the year of 1992, within months of the time of the Thomas hearing. And it's important for me to say this because two things are working. One, I was not hiding. I had done nothing to hide from. I had some things to say, but I also... I had to give myself at least a small amount of time to create some distance and to give myself some time to heal from what was a traumatic situation. And I say that because I think I speak for a lot of individuals who have gone through these kinds of experiences where you're accused and threatened and and lambasted and reconstructed to fit somebody else's image. When you go through that, you should allow yourself a time to heal. And you should also, you know, not be afraid of living in your own space. So you should give yourself some protection. But eventually we get out. And I've been out basically for the most part of the 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it has in some ways been a part of my healing from that experience, being able to talk about my experience ultimately to give meaning to it, to respond to a lot of the questions that people raised with me after the hearing because they needed some meaning from their own experiences that were similar to mine. So it's been a journey and it's evolved and I've evolved. But if I had anything to say about it, to sum it up, there should be a lesson in that for all people who have gone through trying situations that they faced in the public eye and came through as a survivor. There are two particular episodes that you titled Revisiting 1991, where you actually bring people on from that period in your life. So we have Sakari Hardnett and also Susan Della Ross, who was a part of your legal team. And Sakari was the woman who the Judiciary Committee never reached out for her to come forward and, and actually testify. And so can you comment on what that process was like saying, you know what, I'm going to reach out to this woman who I have never even spoken to to come on my podcast and talk about her truth? Well, one of the biggest travesties of the 1991 hearing was the failure to call witnesses whose experiences were similar to mine or related to mine, who I didn't know, but who stepped up and wanted to provide evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee about Thomas's character and behavior. And I felt that the reason they weren't called is one of the same reasons that I was treated so badly was because they were seen as expendable. The three women that I'm talking about are Angela Wright, Sukari Hardnett, and Rose Jourdain, all Black women yeah. who were willing and ready to testify, but the Senate failed to call them. In some cases, they did allow them to have information put in the record of the proceedings, but they were never allowed to appear in public. 
And I thought it was, as I said, a travesty. I wanted to know what they would say. I wanted to hear from them directly, and I wanted to correct what I believe was a big mistake on the part of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I did talk with Sakari Hartnett, and she has a an incredible story about how she came forward, put herself at risk, put her career at risk, because she felt it was the right thing to do. And the conversation, really, I ended up admiring her even more than I had the chance to admire her in 1991, because I got the full story of why she wanted to be a part of that hearing, why she thought it was important. She also is a lawyer, so she was thinking about the role that the law should play in the integrity of the court, as she says, being on the right side of the law and being on the right side of history. So Susan Della Ross was an attorney who represented me at the hearings, and I wanted people to uh, hear from Susan Della Ross because Susan is an attorney who had practice in the area of sexual harassment and other gender discrimination cases as well, and she offered evidence of the kind of information that she tried to provide for the Senate Judiciary Committee, expert testimony about how the issue of sexual harassment actually plays out in people's lived experiences. And she was not able to get that evidence before the committee members. They they refused to accept it. Certainly, there was never any public offering of it or a chance for it to be read to the public or explained to the public. There were no expert witnesses called, even though there were witnesses available who could have explained the issue of sexual harassment and done away with a lot of the misinformation that was being put out there by some of the senators. So for me, it was all a part of, I won't say bringing closure to the hearings, but really giving context to the hearing that people had not been allowed to see or hear about. And the title of your podcast is Getting Even. What does it mean to get even in 2022? Well, there's so many ways and so many inequalities that exist. And we are just evolving as a society to start to recognize those equalities. And sometimes the recognitions of equalities come through tragedy. I mean, if we think about where we were in 2020, when we realized how many disparities existed in terms of healthcare and wellness and access to resources during the pandemic. One sort of unknown, I think, or not so well publicized, but something that was going on in 2020, there was this surge in intimate partner violence. So again, those are the kinds of things that don't necessarily reach the headlines, but they're the day-to-day experiences of people who are experience discrimination or they're experiencing violence based on their identity. So when I talk about getting even, it is how do we level the playing field for individuals in ways that we don't necessarily see in newspapers, but that exist. And we shouldn't have to wait until there's a tragedy to learn about them and learn how to deal with them. But we're now learning that equality is more than just giving somebody an opportunity to have a job. Equality is more than giving somebody an opportunity to go to school. Equality really is about evaluating them fairly and doing away with all the stereotypes and the misrepresentations of our qualifications and judging them for the value that they can add to our institutions. And I guess the simplest answer to getting even is for people to understand that equality is about getting even. It's about leveling the playing field for all of us and leaving no one behind in doing so. And that's why I named the podcast Getting Even. So we're on the heels of a historic moment. At the beginning of April, the Senate voted to confirm Judge Kentaji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court after four days of hearings that were led by the Senate Judiciary Committee. 
But before we even get into specifics about that, I just would love to hear your thoughts on Biden's promise to even nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court. Some called it affirmative action. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Is Biden's decision to say, I'm going to put a Black woman on the Supreme Court, is that affirmative action? Well, I, I don't really think it's affirmative action. I, and even if it is affirmative action, mm-hmm. I won't use the term in the pejorative way that those people who accused Biden of affirmative action did. I mean, they went further. They said it was preferential treatment or reverse discrimination or or something of that nature. What I think that Biden did was absolutely correct. He recognized that we need diversity on the courts. We need it throughout the federal judiciary. And it hasn't happened over the past hundred and something years that we've been making these nominations. And it's time somebody stepped up and took a stand and showed us how it can be done and that it can be done in a way that really adds to the value of the court. And so I'm very grateful that someone took that stand. And I hope the idea catches on and will continue throughout the federal system. You know, we have a population now that does not have confidence in the federal courts. The courts now have, the Supreme Court at least, has the lowest uh, approval rating that it's probably ever had in the history of this country. And that's in part because of the court itself and the behavior of individuals on the court, but it's also because the process that we have tends to keep producing the same kinds of judges that we have a predominantly male, white court system, uh, judges throughout the court system. And we have a population that feels that they're not being represented by the people who are sitting on the bench. I think we need to address that in various ways. And the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson is just the beginning. So you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post recently after the hearings were over, saying that the confirmation process is broken and that the body must work to restore the public's faith. What did you see in the recent hearings that led you to say that? Well, what I saw was a hearing that was a hearing in name only. I did not see a proceeding that was in place to help the American people understand the nominee's position on the court, how they would be in terms of their judging. I didn't see a hearing that was set up for people to understand what her judicial philosophy was or how she would fit in the history of the court's jurisprudence. I didn't see that because it all got sort of clouded. I won't say sort of. It got obscured and deconstructed through these false accusations about her positions on the court, positions that she had taken as a judge. What was missing from the hearing itself was an opportunity for the American public to witness what kind of judge Katanji Brown-Jackson would make on the Supreme Court, for her to present her credentials, to present her philosophies, her intelligence, her belief in the court system, and her belief in the rule of law. And that was taken away from us. It was not only taken away from her, but it was taken away from us. And that's why I call it a failed process. Can we talk about process then? Because when I hear you speak a lot of the times, it sounds like you are committed to changing the system itself and working within the structure that exists. So what would it look like if we actually had a hearing that was fair, that got us to understand what she would be like on the court? Is this a matter of tearing down the system completely, or do you see ways that we could actually improve it with the general structure that it has right now? Well, I think we can improve it with what we have right now. But here's the thing. We have to start by acknowledging that there was a high level of racism and a high level of sexism and an intersection you know, of both of those things in the way that the confirmation hearing played out. That completely is unacceptable in any process that is a part of the federal judiciary or any vetting of a person who is nominated for 
a position representing the United States. You cannot have that level of of racism and sexism. You can't allow that to be part of your system. Once that starts to happen, it's just like we are turning back the hands of time and moving back into an era before there were even civil rights laws and before there were civil rights protections. And too many people have fought for those things for us to be willing to give them up in a federal process. The hearing itself took a woman with impeccable credentials and then bit by bit attempted to destroy those credentials through racist tropes, stereotypes, through browbeating the the witness over and over asking questions that had already been asked and answered before, false information that was being put out about whether or not critical race theory was being taught in an elementary school through a picture book. I mean, all of those things were out there and became part of the process. Now, no court of law would allow that kind of a process. No court would allow the kinds of questioning and badgering of the witness that occurred in the Senate Judiciary Committee. So to start with, if you want to change the process, one of the things that the Senate Judiciary could do is to reform the way that questions are raised to nominees. I mean, there are models that are so much better. And if they engaged federal judges, retired federal judges, the Senate Judiciary Committee, they could very well put together a set of standards that would allow for real inquiry and intense inquiry on these issues because they are important issues that need to be raised, but that would not violate basic principles of fairness and process at the same time. And I think that courts are doing that every day. Judges are doing that every day. You have some federal judges who have done it. They have now retired. They can be guides for the Senate judiciary process. That's fascinating. And in terms of just witnesses as well, like how do you think the process can be different for witnesses who come forward and testify? Well, there has to be an intake process for witnesses. When it comes to me, when it comes to Christine Blasey Ford, there was just absolute lack of clarity in terms of how we could come forward with information about a nominee. And to the extent of my knowledge, there still is no such process for the Senate Judiciary Committee. If it is, it's not been published, so that an individual could come forward today with information, with legitimate information, but not have any sense of how they are going to get that information before the committee. People complain about, well, you know, this is being tried in the press. One of the reasons that things get tried in the press is because there's no legitimate process set forth by the committee. So ultimately, things get leaked, which was the case with my statement. Things get leaked, and ultimately, the public has an interest. They want to know. And that is just not the best way for us to resolve these issues that witnesses have when they know of behavior that is inappropriate for a person who is sitting in a cabinet position or a person who is on the court. Again, it's a matter of setting up a fair intake process. So a person will know where to go, how that information then is going to be handled, who's going to be able to do an investigation on it so that that investigation isn't tainted by conflicts of interest. You can't have, for example, the FBI doing an investigation when the president who has nominated the individual can stop the FBI from even talking to witnesses that might have even more information to provide. Process is one of those things that lawyers talk about, and most people kind of glaze over when you hear people going to conversations about process. But they're very important, and process alone can determine outcome. 
got to take a quick break. When we come back, before the Supreme Court confirmation process can get any better, why is Anita Hill worried that it might get worse? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks, hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Is any part of you concerned that the confirmation hearings might just get uglier before they get worse. Like we have Republicans, they just need one seat in November to retake the Senate, whether that's for top judiciary posts or vacancy on the Supreme Court in 2023. So much could happen in the next two years. So I'm wondering if you think that we should get ready for things to be even uglier. Well, I think it was uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina who indicated that, as a matter of fact, that things would get uglier if, in fact, in this midterm election, the Senate becomes Republican-led. That, in fact, even if President Biden nominates another person with the credentials of Katanji Brown-Jackson, they will not be given a hearing because the leader of the Judiciary Committee will be a Republican, and they will have the votes to even block a hearing. So the positions will stay vacant until they get the judge that they want, which means that the Senate selects the judge. And so I think that's that's when we know it's gotten completely broken. I mean, we were there nearly there a few years ago when President Obama had a nominee that was not given a hearing. That was a signal that things were getting worse. They were going to continue to get worse. I think the Jackson nomination was another signal that they have every intent on making these nomination hearings really impossible and, quite frankly, an embarrassment, a public embarrassment. And even from a viewer's perspective, like, Thinking about mental health, you mentioned trauma earlier. Is it triggering for you to watch the hearings, like seeing Christine Blasey Ford in 2018 and then now seeing what happened just last month? Like, how do you cope with that? It's angering. Yeah. It makes me quite angry. I'm sure emotionally it does trigger responses that relate back to my own experience. 
But more importantly, of late, especially having worked through those feelings for over 30 years now, more, it just makes me angry. And I'm angry in part because I know it doesn't have to be that way. And I know that the way it is, is actually harming the court. It's harming, really, the integrity of our entire government, because it's implicating not only the courts, but also the Senate itself and the presidency. So those kinds of experiences over and over again will have a cumulative effect on how we see our government entirely. Do you still believe in the Supreme Court as an institution? Oh, as an institution? I believe in the Supreme Court, but I also know from history alone, I mean, the institution of the Supreme Court is only as good as the people who are on it. As a lawyer who studied the law and the evolution of the law, it was the Supreme Court that gave us Dred Scott versus Sanford. It basically said Black people had no rights that white people had any need to observe. It gave us Plessy versus Ferguson. And so I know that the Supreme Court is not flawless, but I also know that it is my responsibility, and I believe the responsibility of everyone who has taken the bar and pledged an oath to the Constitution, I think it's every one of our responsibilities to make sure that the Supreme Court is what it should be, that it has the integrity it should have, and that the people on it have that integrity. And that's how I can restore my faith in the courts. So do you think it'll be a long time until your faith is fully there? Because I think we're moving to a place where the court's likely going to overturn Roe v. Wade in late June. We know that Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and now Brown-Jackson are going to be part of this liberal minority that are just riding dissents. So how can we just have faith when everything just looks so grim? Well, I think the only way that we can really have faith is to look at this in the long term, because I've read the history and I know there was a Plessy versus Ferguson, but I also know that there was a Brown versus the Board of Education. And that in many ways, Brown overturned Plessy and began to chip away. I don't say that the court is infallible and or that every decision that is made that I agree with, but if the court has real integrity, it can change. The law can change because people develop strategies to move the law closer to the Constitution than it was in 1896 when Plessy was decided. We can move the law to where it should be in line with the protections the Constitution promises. You cited how unpopular the court is now. So I have some numbers from Gallup's latest poll. This was taken in September 2021, and just 40% of Americans approve of the job that the Supreme Court is doing and 53% disapprove. And so that's a new low for the court. So for folks who aren't familiar with Plessy and aren't familiar with these other horrible decisions that the Supreme Court has made but eventually overturned through other rulings, how are they supposed to find hope in the Supreme Court? But then I'll also add, like, with new information that's been brought to light, like the spouse of the Supreme Court justice was found to be actively campaigning to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential elections. Like, how can a common person just walking down the street be excited about the Supreme Court with this kind of knowledge? I'm not sure that they can be satisfied with where the court is today. I think there are probably people who are very satisfied with it. But I know that there are others who are not. And I know that people are working on the strategies that will ultimately make for better decisions, just as they did back in the 1890s, when there was just so much to overcome in terms of what was wrong with the Supreme Court's decisions. It's hard to have that long view of the court. But I think that's where we have to be right now, is we've got what I call a supermajority of people on the court who probably will continue to cut things like voting rights, certainly, as you had mentioned, will undermine and chip away with Roe versus Wade, if not completely reverse it. That's where we are right now. But I know from the past that that does not mean that's where we have to always be. And I know that there are too many people who are fighting against that for it to hold forever. 
I just hope that not too much damage is done to our rights and protections and to the Constitution before we can get back on the right track. Mm. And let me just say that there are other ways that we can reverse some decisions. I mean, we can do that legislatively. We can do it legislatively at the federal level. So elections are important. We can do that at the state and local level to provide protections for people when the federal law fails us. We can think about how we feel that we are living up to the laws of our land outside of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not the only body that is in charge of making sure that the Constitution is enforced. And I know some lawmakers have pushed forward a a couple of bills to institute a code of conduct for the Supreme Court. So just making very specific guidelines for when a justice should recuse themselves from a certain case. And so it seems like these bills have stalled. So I'm wondering if the Supreme Court should just go ahead and do this because they have the power to create something like this for themselves. Are you in favor of something like that? I definitely think that it should happen. I think, you know, we cannot create for the Supreme Court, this bubble from the reality of what conflicts mean. I mean, conflicts mount, and they then undermine the integrity of our legal system. We are a country that observes the rule of law. And when our legal system is undermined, when open conflicts are allowed to be presented without any recourse or without any response, then what we have done is really taken away from our entire government. We've reached that level right now where people are shaking their heads and they don't know how to have confidence in the system because it is openly failing them right now. I think we need to get a handle on that. There are plenty of people out there who have given their opinions about what Justice Roberts should do as Chief Justice. But ultimately, it's something that is going to have to be done in ways where there is real buy-in across different government bodies. I think the Senate needs to be involved. I think the House needs to be involved, as well as the judiciary. And I will say this, and, and I may sound naive, but I think that the American public really wants there to be a level playing field. They don't want a court that appears on its face to be biased without recourse. They want courts to represent integrity and fairness and justice. And so I'm hopeful that people will get behind it and that there will be corrections, whether it's coming from the Supreme Court itself or coming from the Supreme Court in connection with some of the other governmental bodies. So when it comes to Kentaji Brown-Jackson's time on the court, what will you be watching for? What will you be looking for in her opinions? And what opportunities would you say we as a country have now that we have this Black woman with her kinds of experiences sitting on the Supreme Court? Well, I think we have opportunities for her to craft opinions. I don't know where she is going to land on issues, but she can craft opinions that are majority opinions, or she can craft opinions that are dissents. But what is inside those opinions, the language that she uses, the reasoning that she uses to get to an outcome, to me, are as important as the outcome itself, because that really signals the future direction of where the court is going or where it should be going. I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of judge she is. The other thing that I think is very important is that this is going to be the first time that there is a Black woman on the Supreme Court who will be involved in collaboration with her colleagues, who will be discussing the issues. She has mentioned that She thinks about the impact of the law, and that's important. There's nothing wrong with thinking about the impact of the law because in many cases when judges are deciding a case or the legality of a law, they do look at the intent behind the law. So intent, 
an impact could be very important in terms of the discussions that are had behind the scenes when justices are talking about cases and they're deliberating on these cases and ways that bring in new perspectives and new opinions. I wanted to just quickly go back and talk a little bit more about the space that we saw Kintandri Brown-Jackson in during the hearings, just the kinds of attacks that only she could receive because she's a Black woman. So because of her race and her gender, certain comments or things were made to belittle her in that way. So can you just comment on this idea of misogynoir and why what we saw was unique to the kinds of attack and violence that Black women receive? Yeah, well, it seemed to be a strategy of trying to undermine her credentials altogether. So all of her years of judging, which put her really ahead of all of the other justices on the court, she had more judicial experience than any of the other members when they were nominees. And everyone knew that. So I think they had to start with attacking those credentials. So they took one case involving child pornography and that's what they latched on to, saying that she was soft on crime, which I believe was racist because the presumption that we cannot be fair about crimes just because we, in a sense, are presumed to be criminal in certain racist tropes and stereotypes. I think what they did with the situation involving the sentencing of an individual who had possession of huge amounts, admittedly, of child pornography, was to sexualize her position that she took in offering the sentence that she did. And that was a way of sort of sexualizing her to say that she was abetting or aiding pedophilia. We know that African-American women have been historically fantasized and sexualized in terms of our own bodies and our own experiences. And it wasn't nuanced or subtle, but it was a veiled way of sexualizing her by attaching her to pedophilia or deviant sexual behavior. The racial part of it really did come through with the discussion about critical race theory and the fact that she sent her children to a school that was committed to social justice. The school had information about anti-racism, that she was on the board. From there, they created this presumption that, of course, she knew that critical race theory was being taught in the school because she was on the board of the school. Well, there was no evidence, one, that critical race theory was being taught. There's certainly no evidence that she knew of any kind of those teaching. But I mean, she was racialized before, and I think it was not only race, but also misogyny, when she was labeled an affirmative action nominee. We know that women's credentials are more likely to be called into question. The research shows that even when there's a woman and a man with the same credentials, or the same credentials are on a resume, but one has a female-sounding name and one has a male-sounding name, that scientists chose the male-sounding name as the better candidate. So we know that those kinds of ideas are floating out there. So that's why she was able, especially as a Black woman, they were able to label her as unqualified, even though, as I said earlier, she had more judicial experience, had gone through the process of being evaluated many times over, and was, even when she was under fire, proven to be quite adept, quite smart, quite patient, and having wonderful judicial temperament. Yet, she has been stuck with a label of being not qualified. Something else I'd like to enter into the record as well that I don't see enough people talking about is the fact that Kentaji Brown-Jackson is also a dark-skinned Black woman. She has locks in her hair, and there's so much hair discrimination cases that are going on. Can you just comment on these other elements of her identity as well and, and what that means for representation? Well, I think it is, as you say, representation. Is she representing in a way that is deemed acceptable by certain standards. I would say that if she were being hired in the workplace, 
the fact that she is dark-skinned, the fact that she does have locks would be held against her because we know those cases exist. They have been a part of some lawsuits, and now the law is responding to prohibit that kind of discrimination. But that kind of discrimination exists. And you're absolutely right. It's not talked about very much. I mean, there is also name discrimination. Yes. The fact that she has a name that is not Susan or Mary or Anita could, in fact, influence someone against hiring her. And this has all been proven by research. And we've seen it played out in the lives of people. And we've seen it played out in the case law. We're going to take one last quick break. When we're back, media coverage made Anita Hill into a symbol of sexual harassment. But in her latest book, Believing, she writes about gender violence. Why? Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. So I'd love to move on to your latest book, Believing, which I have right here. And in the book, you look at where the movement against gender violence has gone in the past 30 years. So what is gender violence? What does it encompass? And how has your idea of gender violence changed over the past three decades? Well, it encompasses a range of behaviors. And you're right to point out the fact that it has evolved. It's evolved in my mind. And it's evolved in my mind because I think that what I believed in 1991 was that what we were dealing with was different kinds of behavior. So sexual harassment was over here. It was one kind of behavior. Sexual assault was another. Intimate partner violence was another. Incest was something else. And what I understand now is that these are all behaviors that are interrelated. They're part of a spectrum of violence that gets leveled against primarily women but that can occur in situations because someone doesn't express their gender in what we call the traditional masculine way or traditional feminine ways. And I've heard from people who have experienced all of the ranges of behavior, and they understand my experience as similar to their experience. They're not all the same in terms of behavior, but the cultures that support and allow for this behavior to continue are the same. And so that's why I talk about gender violence. You know, people ask, well, why didn't you just write a book about sexual assault? Or why didn't you write a book about 
sexual harassment or intimate partner violence alone? Why don't you just do this all separately? Because they aren't separated in our culture. And if we don't treat the whole of the problem, then we are going to be constantly trying to put out fires. And if we don't look at it as a whole, we're not going to see the kind of pain that is being caused that is really traceable to one source, and that is cultural ideas about gender that exists in our country that devalues women and people who present as women. And I I even feel like our collective understanding of gender has changed a lot over the past three decades. Like, for example, we know that gender is a spectrum. We know that there are many different genders and different ways to express one's gender. And then at the same time, we have a handful of state legislatures that are recognizing this and they're crafting bills and passing legislation that specifically affect trans people or trans teens who are trying to play sports. We have Texas Governor Abbott, who's talking about opening up child abuse cases against parents who say that their children can go ahead um, and move forward with trans-affirming health care. And so, like, 2021 was the deadliest year for trans and gender non-conforming people, according to data from the Human Rights Campaign. And even when we talk about critical race theory, those bills also contain provisions that prohibit educators from talking about gender identity and gender in the classroom. And so how is this reality, this expanded idea of gender that the wider public is coming to understand, how has that also changed your activism? It is exactly what I try to bring into the discussion. And I guess if I were going to sum it up, it's an indication that we are making progress because with progress comes this kind of backlash. When I wrote Believing, one of the things that I wanted to be sure that at least I helped people understand was that the problem is not just limited to women. And it's not just gender alone. It can be gender combined with race. It can be sexual identity. It can be sexual identity combined with race. I mean, so there are all these ways that we are seeing this expressed and that the country is starting to understand and realize that the people that we're talking about are all human who are suffering because of our ideas about who they should be. And with that has come a certain level of backlash that has come in the form of legislation. Don't say gay and putting people in prison, criminalizing people And I think we are yielding not to our better angels, but to those voices that would have us exclude them from what we deem is acceptable behavior or acceptable society. And it's a tragedy, but the struggle continues. It doesn't stop. I think, in fact, for many people, when those kinds of restrictive laws are passed, then they see how important it is for us to be protecting people and how big the challenges are for people who are experiencing uh, this kind of discrimination, that we are a long way from equality. It's much more evident today than it was when we didn't talk about these issues at all. Amid the backlash, do you feel like victims and survivors, do you feel like we are being more real and present about what we experience? I think we are. I think absolutely we are. And I think that we have allies who are being more present and more adamant in the resistance to the backlash. And that's really what it's going to take. It's going to take people who are not living the trauma and living the violence that can come because of their identity to get us through this period. We cannot continue to put the entire burden of protecting themselves on the people who are suffering the victimization. That's why we all have to be involved. We all have something at stake. When I talk about gender-based violence, I put it this way. Whether you admit it or not, you know somebody who has been a victim and maybe even somebody you deeply care about, that makes it everyone's problem. And that's what we have to do as a society. We have to own this problem. 
Is there any tangible like legislation or something that happened after Me Too, or even if we look at the racial reckoning of 2020, just changes that took place that you're like, you know what, this made all the difference for survivors. This has really changed and, and we need more of this thing. One of the things that is evolving is the ability or the willingness of prosecutors to take on cases of sexual assault and rape that they were not taking on before. The kinds of evidence that is being admitted has changed, as well as the charges to juries have changed. Evidence that shows patterns and practices on the part of a defendant. The statute of limitations have changed in terms of when cases can be brought. They've changed, especially in cases of assaults on children. That's movement. Some of the movement in the criminal justice system has changed because of legislation. Some has made change in terms of the prosecutors taking responsibility for accepting more cases and going to trial with more cases and knowing how to try more cases. So that's encouraging because it means the change is coming from different fronts. It's not all happening in one place. The culture is changing. Our ideas are changing. So in a criminal justice case, now with more people really understanding rape and the distinctions between rape and rape myths, now we absolutely know there's a greater likelihood that you can get a jury that will understand the distinctions. And what about on college campuses? You're a teacher. How do you think change has come to higher education and students kind of leading the charge with challenging gender violence on their campuses? Well, the students have led the charge. It's still not enough, though. We still have to have processes that allow for students. You know, students are vulnerable. And again, our processes cannot put the entire burden of changing a system on the people who are vulnerable to being mistreated. So we've got to enlist more people. And that means alums and parents, people who give lots of money to schools and they have an influence at schools. I mean, I I talk about in Believing some of the high-profile cases involving sexual assault of multiple individuals, very often associated with sports. And what we find is that there are layers of people who knew about it, from administrators to people from outside, people who need to be held accountable. But I will say this. One of the things that I write about is what's happening in elementary schools. As I was writing Believing, I had got this email about girls. And this particular girl had told her teacher in the second grade that she was being assaulted by a boy. And the teacher punished the girl because she said that she was inappropriate in terms of the things that she said. Wow. So we know these things are happening where victims are told that they shouldn't make a big deal about it. It's not that bad. Or they're blamed for the things that have happened to them. And at the same time, we're telling the victims that the problem isn't that bad. We are saying to children who are abusive, they are not accountable for their own abuse. So we are creating young people, encouraging them to accept abuse on both sides. Accept that it's inevitable, that nobody's going to do anything about it, or that you're going to get in trouble for complaining, or to accept that your bad behavior has no consequences. Therefore, you can do it. If we respond differently, I believe that we can address it at an early age and prevent it from escalating to worse behavior when we get to high school and colleges and the workplace. And I think we have to think about it as a continuum of problems. As I say, we need to own the problem. In order for these issues to be addressed, we all need to take responsibility and ownership of the role that we can play in addressing them. Anita, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Box Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. 
Our editor is Amy Jostowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear about that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Thank you.